Take your Bibles and find your way to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We'll get there eventually, but not right away, so just don't lose heart as, uh, as we start here this morning. We're continuing our series uh, entitled, Why Bother? Why Bother with the Church? And in this series, we've been asking and answering that question to help us examine our own perspective and our own relationship toward Christ's church. The topic of church can be difficult for some of us. Uh, When you hear the word church, some of you might have warm and fulfilling emotional responses when you hear that word. Others of us likely have a different response. You have wounds and maybe sadnesses caused by your experience with so-called church. For most of us, it's likely a blend of both. You probably have a mixture in your heart of blessings and burden. And that's probably what you're feeling, the people right here, us together as a church family, are feeling even in this moment, a blessing and a burden. Right now, as we consider our relationship towards Christ's church. Yet in all of that experience, whether it's a blessing or a burden, we are Christians. And that means that we approach life and our understanding of the stuff of life through a biblical worldview, a biblical lens. And because we're Christians, that means we must start and end our discussion about the church with a biblically shaped understanding. So we can think of it this way, that no matter what we might feel or think about church when left to our own understanding, to our own thinking, we must submit ourselves to the instruction that Jehovah God has given us in his word. And that's what we've been setting out in this sermon series, is trying to give biblical attention to what the Bible says about church and finding where are the ways that we are thinking differently about church. Where are the ways that God would offend our thinking, offend our understanding, and correct us? Which, by the way, it's been said that if if God, if your God never offends and corrects you, you don't truly worship God. God and what he has said about the church is the diamond surface that cuts and, and marks and should be shaping our thinking, not the other way around. So I suppose we could give the simple answer to our question, why bother with the church, as simply as this, because God says so. <laughs> why bother with the church? Because God says so. Church is important and consequential, not because a pastor says so. It's because God himself confers importance upon the church by speaking about it in his word. We can be assured that what God says about his church is good and it is a path of rich blessing for his people. And so today we're going to continue to ask why bother with the church and the sermon today is going to be an answer to that question, another answer to that question. If you're a guest with us, we spend a few weeks in this series. We'd encourage you, you can find the other um, topics in this series online so you can catch up with where we're at. This morning, why bother with the church? Because we belong together. Because we belong together. And so the sermon this morning is going to be an effort at trying to give you biblical reasons why we belong together. Why bother with the church? Because we belong together. Which means we have to be thinking about the idea of community. And the term or the idea of community, the idea of of the community of God's people, the nature of God's people, is a theme found throughout scriptures. In fact, It's so prevalent in the scriptures that it's impossible to rightly read and understand God's word without understanding and having a clear awareness of the sense of community. The stories of the Bible are at their core community or communal stories, which, by the way, should give us a little bit of a pause on how we often, our culture, would have us understand some of the Bible stories. For instance, one of the most popular ones, like David and Goliath, 
How often has that been touted as, you be the David, you be the person that overcomes the Goliaths in your life. But that really has nothing to do about an individual. It has everything to do about what God is doing in his people, through his, through, through his people, in his people, and what's going on with God's uh, covenant promises to his people. So even those stories about individuals like Samson or David or Abraham or Jacob or Joseph, they are not individual stories. They are embedded in the communal story of what God is doing in the redemptive history of his people. And praise God, we are part of his people now as Christians. This communal foundation might strike our Western American sensibilities oddly or irritably. And that's because our culture often champions the cause of the individual over and against the community. And so goes the mantras of our age where it's follow your dream or follow or do whatever your heart tells you. Those are the kind of the mantras of our age. And so even though we as Christians, we are Christians, we are still unavoidably affected by the spirit of our age. It's, it's in the air we breathe, so to speak. It's all around us. And so the, our innate self-centeredness, that tendencies in us that try to make life all about us, right? We all fight against that. Those innate tendencies are easily excited or aggravated by this cultural emphasis on individual rights you say, well, why are you saying all this? Because our, those self-centered tendencies are the prevailing spirit of our cultural age make it difficult for us, even as Christians sometimes, to see the value of something like church when it collides with our individual tendencies or preferences or even our experiences, when we feel the suffering and hardship of living in community. We live in a society that makes decisions based largely on what works for me. And when we hit a spot where we say, that doesn't work for me anymore, then we say, we're done. And if the perceived value of church doesn't have a direct connection to our individual desires or preferences, then we start to lose sight of the value of Christ's church. Which means then that we all are at risk of treating Christ's church as, some other, as any other entity in our life. I'm not accusing us of this, I'm just trying to establish why we need this, okay? <laughs> Please don't think I'm accusing this, uh, us of this. I'm just trying to just lay out that even though here we are Christians gathered together on the Lord's Day, gathered with the church, right? You're like, well, come on. Why are you saying this to us? You ought to be saying this to all the people that aren't here. But we still have the tendencies lurking within us. And it's likely that we find ourselves kind of ebbing and flowing through our thinking like this. And here's some of the reasons why. It's in us. It's in our age. And we're all at risk then of treating Christ's church as any other entity in our life instead of the amazing God-created kind of community that it is. Really, there's no other community like church ever, at, at all. There isn't. The church is unique. I am grateful that Jehovah God does not relate to his church as we are often tempted to. I'm grateful. Thankfully, God has bound himself to the church through eternal promises of steadfast love and faithfulness. And friends, that is good news. And if God Almighty is willing to tie himself to the church in that eternal way, can't we give our hearts and lives to it as well, even in our own limited human way? So, the sermon today is going to be an effort to prove to us why we belong together. Why do we belong together? Number one, we belong together because the church's commission is communal. It's communal. And by the way, I'm, not, I'm likely not going to be teaching anything, preaching anything new this morning to us. Uh, if you're a guest here, maybe, some, maybe this will be new to you, but it's likely that uh, to this church family, none of this is going to be new. The church's commission is communal. When I say commission, I'm referring to the Great Commission that is found in Matthew chapter 28. We've looked at it a couple of times in this sermon series already, I believe. 
With that great commission, it reads this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commission shows us that once disciples are made, they are baptized. Pastor Steve taught about baptism last week as one of the essentials of the New Testament church. Baptism is one of those church ordinances, is a distinctly communal ordinance. There's a theological, there's a biblical reason why people don't just baptize themselves at home alone in the bathtub. There's something more going on than just a person getting wet in water, right? There's something more going on that the Bible teaches us. It's distinctly communal. The same is for, for the Lord's Supper. There's a reason that you don't just have the Lord's Supper alone at home with crackers and juice whenever you'd like it. There's something that, that is being preached as the community of God's people gather and observe and exercise those ordinances together. Their, their essence requires community. Their exercise is, by its nature, communal. Christian baptism is when professing Christians publicly proclaims their faith in Christ amongst other Christians who affirm and give witness to that confession. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that those who received the, the word, the gospel message that was preached, here's the response. They were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were added to the church. That's what the t- context is inferring. And so in Acts 2, when people were baptized, they were added to the church. And so that means that when Christians were made When people were made Christians through the gospel message being proclaimed, then they were added into the church community. And there's no exceptions to that found in our New Testament anywhere. Anywhere. So this means then that when God saves a person to himself, he saves them to a people. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. But not disciples that are just scattered and living independently isolated lives from one another. No, go and make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father and Son. What happens when they're baptized? They're added to the church. Now they're living in community with those whom they proclaim their confession of faith in front of and those who testified of that confession. And then they carry on in that mission together, teaching them to observe all that that Christ has commanded. We belong together because we have been called into a mission together where we invite more and more people to know and enjoy God with us. In fact, if we were to jump all the way ahead to the end of our New Testament in Revelation, some of the best pictures of what we are looking forward to together include this idea of people from every tribe and tongue and language gathered together, united in praise and worship of God. What is that? That's community again. It's those who have been on mission together, enjoying now the results of that mission accomplished, enjoying God forever. When God saves a person to himself, he saves them into a people, his people. So then, there is no such thing in the Bible as a solitary maverick Christian living on their own apart from the accountability and blessing of a community of God's people. There isn't. Even Paul, isolated in prison, is writing letters to Christians. He's one in his letter saying, please bring me this, please bring me that. He's writing in his letters how thankful he was for, the, for, the, for somebody who visited him while he was in prison, who helped him in his time of need. So then, we belong together because we share a mission together, which is one of the blessings yesterday of, of us gathering together and, and engaging in mission, of, of presenting to our community a place of welcome and fellowship and God's love in our community. We belong together because we share a communal mission, but there's more. 
And this is why I've asked you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We belong together because your identity as a Christian is a communal identity. Your identity as a Christian is a communal identity. So in other words, you cannot think of yourself as a Christian without also thinking of yourself as a member of God's people. Those two ideas in the scriptures are inexorably connected. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who have been scattered and dispersed. You'll see that in the beginning of chapter 1, how he, he, he identifies his, uh, who he's writing to. These Christians in this dispersion, Christians have been scattered, right? These are people living out a Christian faith in a pagan society. Sound familiar? In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's writing to them about Christ, who is a precious and chosen cornerstone. You see that in verse 4. He assures them that whoever believes in Christ, verse 6, will not be put to shame. Which, by the way, it's not just a, a, a random thought there that he's throwing in. It's very strategic from, from um, Peter's pen because it's likely that the Christians that he's writing to were living under a burden of social shame. They were being ostracized from their community. They don't really belong because they've been scattered. They've kind of been displaced, so they don't feel like they belong anyways because of that reason alone, but I also don't feel like they belong because now they live differently. They think differently than their counterparts. They're likely trying to figure out how they fit into the world around them. They used to fit in, but now they don't because their lives have been transformed by the gospel. Now they don't worship like all their other counterparts in society do. Now they worship one true God. In fact, Christians in that day were called atheists because they didn't believe in the pluralistic gods of their society around them. And so can you understand then how these people in that age, in that day, under that social shame, wondering where they fit in and where do they belong, Peter then writes these words to them. And look then in in verse 9. He assures them. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you imagine how encouraging these words would have been to those Christians? Wondering where they belong, living underneath the sense of shame, wondering if they would ever find a place that would truly be home. And Peter assures them that they do belong. They belong in a way that matters most. They are a chosen race. The world has rejected them, but God has chosen them. They share a common identity with each other. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Once they were not a people, verse 10, but now they are God's people. This is the identity that Peter is ringing for them to understand and rehearse and remember. By the way, if you aren't part of God's people through faith in Jesus, you can be. That's what we've been singing about all morning. We've been singing about Jesus. We've been praying in His name. We've been reading scriptures that point us to Christ. We've been thanking God for the gift of Christ. All of that is because faith in Jesus as God sent one to save us from our sin is what makes us God's people. Peter is writing to Christians and he's encouraging them. Once Peter establishes then their shared identity in verses 11 and 12, he writes about some of the practical implications that flow out of who they are then as Christians. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Peter, you see the beginning there in verse 11, Peter admits their awkwardness that they feel in their pagan society. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's how they perceive themselves. And he says, yes, you're right. That is how you are in this world. But, but you do belong. You have a people. You are God's people. You have been chosen. You are chosen by God. So then therefore, live out with this Christian ethic. Live out with this Christian behavior. The force of Peter's instruction in verse 12 is anchored in who they are as a community. This is not individual marching orders for a single Christian to figure out how to live on their own. No. He's writing to Christians, reminding them that they belong together because they've been chosen by God. They are one of his, they're now part of his people. So therefore, you need to live out, live as the people of God. How do you live as the people of God? Verse 11 and 12 are two, are two instructions on how to do that. Peter's instruction about their Christian life isn't really an obligation to fulfill. If we read verse 11 and 12 and think of it as an obligation, oh, I can't live this way, I have to live that way, then we've missed the richness of what God intends for us. Peter is writing, hey, this is who you are. You don't belong in this world any longer. You feel awkward, you're under shame, you don't understand how you fit into this world, but here's how you fit in. You are God's people. Now, I want you to embrace that understanding, that awareness, and live this way. It's an invitation to truly be who they are. Notice that in Peter's words, there was no emphasis on their individual identity. There is no emphasis on discover what your heart wants and pursue it for God's glory. And there isn't that idea. It's here's who you, God has made you to be together. Now go be that. In a world where they didn't belong, Peter reminds them they do belong. I wonder if we've lost some of the wonder and amazement in the emphasis that Scripture puts on our shared identity in Christ. Again, we live in an American Western world that, that emphasizes the, the individual identity over and above everything. And yet God kind of confronts that, sense, that, that notion with scriptural truth that says, no, Christians are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God, therefore live this way. Do you emphasize your individual Christian experience and expectations and preferences over and above your shared identity as God's people? I wonder how challenging it was for these Christians to figure out how to live the Christian life in their pagan societies. They're displaced. They're foreign residents in a way. They're trying to figure out, I wonder how many arguments they might have had, how many conflicts they might have been working through, trying to work out the nuts and bolts of living out the Christian faith now in their new setting, in their new surroundings. And yet Peter writes life-giving truth to them. Here's who you are, and here's who you get to live to be. Here's, here's how you should live. We are now a people of God. You say, oh, I'm a Christian. Correct. That means you're a part of the people of God. That means we have a new identity as the people of God, which means that we must reorder our lives, our lives around that new identity. Do you? Why does the church matter? Why bother with the church? Because we share a community identity. We share this communal identity. It's impossible for you to say, I'm a Christian, without also saying, I'm part of God's people. Well, where's God's people? Well, right here, here's a local expression of that, right here at Highlands Baptist Church. Why bother with the church? Because we belong together. We share a common mission and we share a common identity. But there is another reason of why we belong together, and it's because spiritual growth requires Christian community. And this is where we'll really spend the rest of our time. Christian spiritual growth requires Christian community. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians chapter 4. If a Bible is intimidating to you and you're not quite sure where Ephesians is, in the Pew Bible there, in the front of it, you'll find a table of contents and you'll find Ephesians in the New Testament. And that'll tell you how you can find your way over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. For what it's worth, we're going to be jumping in verse 12, but just before we get there, notice in verse 1 that Paul is emphasizing their shared calling and identity. In, in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, plural, y'all, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's identifying, listen, you need to live a certain way. What's, what's the way you need to live? Live as who you are. You're Christians. But then further down in chapter 4, beginning around verse 11 and then into verse 12, we learn about how God designed his church to function. This passage is familiar to those here in, the, in this church family. We've gone to this passage many times over the years. In verse 12, we understand that we learn that God gives gifts to his people. And those gifts are meant to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, what is the work of the ministry? If you keep reading, we understand that it's to build up the body of Christ, right? That's in verse 12, to build up the body of Christ. And then in verse 13, we learn that we are together to pursue the goal that is found in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want you to notice the plural pronouns in that verse, until we all attain the unity of the faith. Unity is, requires people together. It's silly for you to describe how unified you yourself are with yourself. Unity requires this idea of plurality, all then aligning together. And he's talking about this, this pursuing of maturity to this, this idea of Christ-likeness for them as a community. How does this happen? Well, it happens in part, look at verse 15. It happens in part by us as a community speaking the truth in love to each other. As we do that, the truth of God grows us in every way into Christ. And this spiritual growth requires each part to work properly. That's verse 16. So in other words, Christians must work together to experience and enjoy spiritual growth and maturity. That's Ephesians 4. God has gifted, God has given gifts to enable that and to ensure that happens. But it requires all those gifts then coming together, working properly, pursuing together this shared goal of maturity as God's people. Maturity being Christ-likeness. So what Ephesians 4 teaches directly cuts across the spirit of our age. One author put it this way, we live in a, I'm quoting, we live in a culture in which the interests and desires of the individual take precedence over those of the family, group, or community. As a result, a high percentage of people want to achieve spiritual growth without losing their independence to a church or to any organized institution. That's, the notion we're working against as Christians in our age. So this means then that according to Ephesians 4, profound spiritual growth and maturity requires a deep involvement in a community of other believers. Now, some of you, maybe the cynics in you, are laughing secretly inside, like, <laughs> you mean to tell me that I'm going to grow more as a Christian being around other Christians? That's ridiculous. Because the Christians I've met, you might be thinking, have actually, you, you would say, have hindered your spiritual growth. Maybe there's wounds, deep wounds from other Christians in your life that you bear the scars of and it's make you skeptical and kind of off, you know, pushing away this idea of deeply getting involved into a church family. 
But a person's relationship with God is designed by God to be lived out in the context of the family of God. And by the way, the New Testament is very honest and it's, it's realistic in its, in its presentation of life in church community. Most of the letters in our New Testament are written to churches because there were problems in the church. And there's truth being written to correct those problems and to give life-giving paths out of those problems so they can better fulfill their mission to display the glory of God. But we need to understand that we cannot live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends. We need a family of Christians to grow and mature as God intends. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I know I'm making us navigate through our Bibles a bit this morning. I'm going to try to have some of these passages on screen for you as well. 1 Corinthians 12 is a passage that's been mentioned already in this series. But here this passage makes it abundantly clear that one of the reasons we belong together is because we need each other. We share a community identity that requires us together in order to grow spiritually. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, Paul is writing about the variety of spiritual gifts that God gives. Okay, this sounds similar to Ephesians 4. There's a variety of gifts that God gives, even though the giver of those gifts is singular. It's God. Many variety in the, in the church, but one source, God. And then look at the analogy that Paul uses, beginning in verse 14, to illustrate what he's saying. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Think of the amazing creativity and resourcefulness and ingenuity that humankind has accomplished. It's not been just the accomplishments of an eye or an ear or a nose. It's been an entire person, people working together, accomplishing these great, these, these astonishing um, things that have been in technology or in medicine or on and on it goes. The Apostle Paul is borrowing this idea of, listen, it's not one member, it's the body. The implications then of this reality are found down in verse 25. Scan, scan over there. there. There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Well, maybe you're thinking, no. All I need is Jesus. I don't need this mess of the church. Just give me Jesus and that's all I need. Maybe you're thinking you can have the best spiritual growth by alone time with Jesus out in the mountains or by a stream or on an ocean beach or something. Maybe you think the church is just hindering and hurting you. Well, you may think that, but that's not Bible. God contradicts you clearly and emphatically. I'm not saying you can't have private devotional moments with the Lord on a side of a stream or by an ocean or in the mountains. I'm not saying that. Please go for a walk and pray and enjoy God. But that is not the summation of your Christian experience. If that is it, then you are lacking largely of the blessing that God has promised for you. The church is the, the scriptures call the church the body of Christ. Which means then to say you want Jesus requires you to say yes to his body. 
And I was trying to work through an illustration of this without being weird. I don't know if I can do that. But just imagine that you were to look at somebody, husbands look at your wife or wives look at your husbands or whatever relationship you want to choose, and and you look at them and say, I really like your head. I choose you, but not your body. And just, how do you think that's going to go? You would be offended if you heard that. Deeply hurt. And you would be saying, you can't say that. Because you can't separate these two. The head and the body are one person. Do you think God... Let me say it this way. God knows that, which is why I believe he chose that analogy to describe his church, the body of Christ, and Christ being the head. That analogy that the scriptures use to describe the church removed the notion of just give me Jesus, but don't give me the church. That would be like you saying, give me the head, but keep the way the body. You can't. You no longer have the person. There are a few, there are a few biblical answers to the question when you say, well, what's the spiritual benefit or the role of the church then in the Christian life? There's a few good biblical answers to that, but to summarize that, I think we could just focus in on the one and other passages found in the New Testament. And the New Testament is filled with instruction and commands for Christians to live out the Christian faith in specific ways toward one another. The church is not primarily just a consumer. You just come and consume services and Bible readings and sermons and singing, and then you leave. That's not really primarily what it is. The church is not consumeristic. The church, by its very nature, is like Jesus, and Jesus came to serve. The head and the body are going to be united in their mission. Jesus came to serve, and so are we. We're here to serve. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to give a rapid-fire perusal of some of those one and other passages. Okay? I'm going to be quick here. This is not meant to be exhaustive. We're going to jump over a bunch. I don't even have these passages on screen because I'm going to be summarizing their statements. But here's just a sampling of them. Galatians 5.13 tells us that we are to, through love, serve one another. Galatians 5.15 says, warns us about the dangers of, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. So there's a real risk of community together, yes. Ephesians 4 says that we are, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32 says, for us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3.13 tells us to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, here's how we should respond. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. By the way, those commands to forgive assume that there's going to be conflict and reasons to forgive in the church. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We've done that already this morning in a way. We've been singing truth to one another. I don't think that means just walk up to somebody and like sing a solo of truth at them. I mean, you're welcome to try that if you'd like, but this is something we've done together as a church family. We've been proclaiming truth, teaching and admonishing one another through, through what? Through song. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And then he says this, just as you are doing. You see, he sees this instinct at, in them in the Thessalonian church and he wants to encourage more of it in them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil 
but always seek to do good to one another. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear the urgency in that? It says every day, and there's a sense that this should be an ongoing thing that's happening in Christians' lives. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, you've heard these verses before. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love. And the let us consider means give careful thought to this. Give your energy and resourcefulness, your creativity to this. How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 10 says, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Well, that sounds a lot like Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, doesn't it? Friends, we could go on and on with more of those passages, and those passages are worth a sermon series on their own, or, or at least a few sermons just to kind of pull out the richness of those, of those verses. But I'll stop there for the sake of time. And reading through that list was not meant to overwhelm you with Christian obligation. That's not the aim, okay? So if you're a list maker, like, okay, no what I got to do as a Christian, and you were making a list when I was reading those verses, please stop. My aim in reading those passages is to emphasize how over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, we are instructed, the, the church is instructed to be engaged in one another's life. That supports this idea, this truth, not the idea, but the truth that in order for us to experience true spiritual growth, we need each other. We need each other. Why bother with the church? Because we belong together. That's why. Now, there is a mystery in this. There is some... There is a mystery in this, okay? And, well, then how do we explain the conflict or the hurt or the wounds that happen within a church? And why should we then continue to be committed to it? Well, but we believe that some things are worth committing to even when we are hurt. Now, I'm not talking about pathological, criminal stuff, okay? Please don't take a simple statement to its extreme application, okay? Please don't do that. But think of it in a, in a family. Now, there can be dysfunctional family, yes. But parents, you've put up with a lot of hurt from your kids, right? Your kids have said things to you that have hurt you. They were ignorant of it. And then you pressed on I want to mention just a couple of implications then about all this as we kind of wrap this up. We belong together. And now let me add just a, a, a clarifier to that. We belong together in embodied presence. In an embodied presence. Now I'm saying this because we live in a world that has just come through all sorts of strange disembodied experiences. When I mean disembodied, I mean like on-screen type of things, okay? And I know there's people watching the stream right now, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not nagging at you right now for watching online, okay? But I want to make sure that we don't confuse what the Scriptures give to us with our modern technological understanding, okay? Here's what I mean. I'm very thankful for technology. Very thankful. It has, it's doing wonderful things in our world, and it brings with it a lot of challenges, too. At the same time, we must understand that there are limits to what technology can and should do. Viewing church online can be a wonderful lifeline in unusual and extreme circumstances. 
Okay, but I'm going to use that term lifeline to differentiate, to, to, to make sure that we're categorizing things differently. We shouldn't turn a lifeline option into normal life. And I think we understand this. Here you are, okay? I realize that. But I just want it to be said so that we're clear. Technological church or online church is not real church. And I say that with all the love in my heart for this church family, okay? This is not meant in judgment. But I don't want us to let culture push us into areas of thinking that God's word says, don't go there. Just because it can be done doesn't mean it should be. And I'm not saying that we're going to stop this, that we're stopping the stream because um, there aren't other benefits. There can be. You're, you're home because there's a child who's sick. I'm glad for the lifeline benefit that it can give you to hear the sermon that your other church family has heard at the same time and experience it. I understand that. But theologically, biblically, the church is a gathered people and it's an embodied gathering. There is a reason why Christians in hard-to-reach nations and restricted-access nations still gather in an embodied gathering, even under great risk. So think of it this way. A marriage that only met online wouldn't really be doing marriage, would it? A family that only met online really wouldn't be doing family, would it? And a church that only meets online, I would contend, scripturally, is not really church. Our shared mission, our shared identity, our call to each other in the one another passages requires an embodied presence. Can we encourage and serve and do things to each other through technology? Yes. I send texts to people all the time doing the one another's. And I'm glad I can do that over a text message. I don't have to drive up and ring your doorbell and you open the door and I read a Bible passage and say, hope that encourages you and then I walk away. I would be tireless. I, I would, that would be ridiculous, right? I'm so glad there's ways that we can encourage each other through technology. Yes. But friends, it does not replace this. It doesn't replace it. It doesn't replace what happens when you walk in these doors with a broken heart because of life. And you are surrounded by other Christians who love you. And it's okay for you to be sad around because they are going to be singing the truths that your heart needs to hear. Nothing replaces somebody looking you in the eye and hearing the need in your heart and then when you can't even figure out the words to pray, praying for you from the Scriptures to an almighty God who hears and knows and delights it when you cast your cares upon Him. Nothing can replace that. Nothing replaces the phenomenon of, of love that is felt and expressed when unbelievers walk in these doors and see people who really don't have other reasons to be together Gathered together, united in praise and worship of God, loving each other because of the, bond, the bonds of Christ in our hearts. We belong together. We are a church family, which then requires this. It requires commitment. Family requires a lot of commitment, doesn't it? And so does church family. And Christians, I just want to encourage us to strengthen our commitment to Christ's family, to the body of Christ, to church. And, and I see it. We see it as elders. We see it in you. And we praise you for it. And we, we thank you for it. We thank God for producing it in you. And as elders, we want to encourage it in us more and more. Which, let me just say this. Let's be careful that we don't let an online stream become the easy button to avoid the cost and consequence and inconvenience of commitment. Let's be careful that we don't just let 
well, the way I want to do it and these other options and I just don't know how to fit church into the rest of my life. Well, friends, then you've got the Bible backwards. God is not an attachment to your life. He should be the center of your life. And his body should be a key role, the centerpiece in that. And our lives should then orbit around that. We exist for a mission and it's God's mission. Love is not mere sentiment or emotion. Love is sacrifice. It is action. It requires energy and focus. And we all give commitment and energy and effort to lots of things in our lives. My question is, is what type of energy and effort and commitment have you been giving to your church? I'm going to ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in a final song. As they come up, I have one final encouragement for us. Since we belong together, let's, let's then find a way to serve together. Folks, you are doing a great job at this. We all have limited amount of energy and time. I've just said that. We're investing our energy and time and effort into various ways in life. I just want to encourage you and invite us again to not overlook or diminish the significance of what we need to do together as a church family. There are various needs in this church family, and that's not a bad thing. God has given gifts in his church to serve and work for the mutual edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. So these needs are invitations or opportunities for us to believe what Jesus says, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. How are you serving this church family? Now, again, I don't want us to make this be like performance-driven, like we're going to have a, you know, the, the church member of the month's parking spot and close to the doors up front and we're kind of all vying for That's not the spirit that the scriptures are going for, okay? But we should be having this idea of Christ's body, this church, what he has redeemed, his redeemed people, and you're part of that, is precious. There's nothing else like this on earth. So, nursery. There's always needs for nursery workers. It seems like whether it's a small church or a large church, every church, every pastor I've talked to has said, man, we constantly are having problems with finding nursery workers. We need help in nursery. Music ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, greeting team, hospitality team, helping with college student ministry, mentoring relationships. I had a conversation, uh, I heard uh, conversation last night, not here at the trunk retreat, separately, not a member of this church. And, they, and this woman said that she'd been a Christian for many years and had never had somebody in, in her life just, just mentor her. I'm so thankful for the mentoring program that is going on here in this church family. Home groups, security team, on and on it can go. If you are not actively serving this church family, why not? It's not because there isn't a need. There are, and we as elders and deacons would be happy to engage and connect you with ways that you can serve. I want to encourage us to be thinking of how can, how can we commit and invest and serve, trusting that what Jesus said is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Why bother with the church? Because we belong together. Let's pray.